Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Joining me today is astrologer Lisa Scheim, and we're going to be talking about um, how to interpret a birth chart and what you can do with natal astrology, even if you don't have a birth time. So this is episode, I believe, 270 of the Astrology Podcast. Today is Sunday, September 6th, starting at 3.05 p.m. in Denver, Colorado. Uh, hey, Lisa, thanks for joining me again. You're welcome. Hi. Hello. Um, all right. So this is a big topic. Um, we've got a lot to talk about today. This is something that comes up frequently, and um, I know it's something that you've gotten questions about before, right? Definitely. Yeah, since um, having a full birth chart with the ascendant and all of the houses and everything does require an exact birth time. And so we're talking about what to do to try to find that and then what to do further if you cannot find one. Right. So um, basically the question is what techniques can be applied in a chart even if you don't have a birth time. And most of Western astrology is very much geared towards birth charts that have an exact birth time. So there's certainly major drawbacks, and we'll have to spend a little bit of time talking about what you can't do first. Um, but then eventually we're going to transition later in the episode into talking about the specific techniques that you can use, even if there's no way for you to figure out what time you were born. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, this is also assuming rectifications out of the question. I also posted a couple of surveys on Twitter and Facebook that I'll link to in the description below this episode. Um, on the description page where other astrologers sort of chimed in and gave their two cents about what they do when they don't have a birth time from a client and what sort of techniques they apply. Mm -hmm. So that was good when you're researching and sort of confirming our own approach, although this episode definitely primarily I think is going to represent our own approach to what we do with untimed charts. Right. Okay. All right. So preliminary matters. First, we need to start by explaining why a birth time is important. And uh, for those that aren't familiar or those who are new to astrology, like what's so important about the birth time and why do you need it? Uh, Western astrology is very much centered around knowing the time of birth, and the birth time is needed in order primarily to calculate the ascendant or what's sometimes known as the rising sign, which is the sign of the zodiac that the ascendant or the western, the eastern horizon was located in at the exact moment you were born. Mm -hmm. Right. And then that further sets up all of the houses, which have a lot of the topics of life associated with them. And so you need the birth time in order to set up where exactly all the planets are located in the chart and what houses they might rule as well. Right. So the houses are important. And this is like a foundational piece of Western astrology that goes back to the founding of what's called Hellenistic astrology, or essentially traditional astrology 2,000 years ago. And the houses indicate both areas of life and topics, but also different people in your life. Mm -hmm. So it can signify things like career, um, finances, uh, travels, and things like that. But it can also th signify things like parents, children, relationships, and other things like that. So the houses actually play a very important role in Western astrology because of their ability to indicate those very specific topics in a person's life that are unique to you compared to somebody else. Exactly. So there's a, that is one of the things that having the birth time sets up, which is everything that comes out from the ascendant. Right. Um, there's also other techniques that are derived from the ascendant, such as the lots or the so-called Arabic parts, which um, are calculated based on the ascendant. So if you don't have an ascendant, you can't calculate the Arabic parts like the part of fortune or the lot of fortune. 
There's also some timing techniques that are based on the Arabic parts of the lots, like zodiac releasing. So if you don't have a birth time and you don't have an ascendant, then you can't calculate your lots, and mm -hmm. therefore you can't calculate zodiac releasing. So not having a birth time takes off the table some very important timing techniques that otherwise are techniques that I normally use in practice in natal consultations, and I know that you use as well. Definitely. And these are some of the reasons why we, you know, before settling on there's absolutely no way to have a birth time, it's good to go through the few places where you can try to look for that. Right. Um, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, even the basic method of annual perfections requires the rising sign. So that's another timing technique where you perfect what you start with the rising sign, you count one sign per year from the ascendant. And that tells you what sign is activated and what planet is activated that year. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the rising sign changes every one to two hours. So that means that unless you know your birth time pretty exactly, there can be some ambiguity um, in terms of what sign the ascendant is located in. For sure. And the other thing that moves um, almost as quickly is the moon. The moon is the primary planet in the chart that could be iffy in terms of what sign it's placed in, depending on how close it is to changing signs the day that you were born. Right. So the moon can change signs. Even the sun can change signs over the course of a day if a person is born very close to a sign cusp. Mm -hmm. So if you were born, um, this is funny, I, I never remember some of the dates like exactly, which I don't know if that makes me a terrible <laughs> astrologer. It might. Uh, but to give an example where what the sun, we're in Virgo right now. So mm -hmm. at some point, I assume later this <laughs> month, the sun is going to get to like 29 degrees of Virgo, and then it'll move into one day into zero degrees of Libra. Mm -hmm. So that's the dividing line between <clears throat> somebody who is a sun sign Virgo versus a sun sign Libra, mm -hmm. and it changes over the course of a day. So it could change mm -hmm. if a person was born at like 1 p.m., it could be in uh, Virgo, and it, by 2 p.m. it could be in Libra. Mm -hmm. Exactly, which often comes up when people are wondering if they're born like on a cusp, if they're born on a day that it changes, but it's definitely in one sign or the other. It's just that sometimes it'll change partway through the day. And you know that's true to a lesser extent to any of the planets. It's just that they don't do it that often. Right. Okay. Uh, that's good to know. So let's move into preliminary steps where before you um, do anything else and before we start talking about, we've established why it's important to have a birth time. So before we get into the techniques about what you do if you absolutely don't have a birth time, I wanted to talk a little bit first about just making sure you've um, gone through every steps, every step that you possibly could to obtain your birth time um, before you go to the last resort of just interpreting the chart without it. Mm -hmm, definitely. And that's important because, as we've been talking about, there are things that you either can or can't do with your chart depending on if you have that birth time or not. So it is good to exhaust your options before you decide that it's just not not something that you can have. So the first time the first thing I always suggest, uh, you know, people can do it in different orders. Um, but I always suggest trying to see if you can get a hold of your birth certificate. And particularly like the most detailed form, um, sometimes called the long form birth certificate, this is going to differ depending on where you were born. Yeah, so try to get a hold of an original copy of your birth certificate if you can, if your parents have it. Otherwise, in some areas you can write to the state and you can pay like a small fee to get a copy of your birth certificate. Mm -hmm. You want to be careful because sometimes um, states, especially in the United States, this is 
obviously our discussion is somewhat United States-centric, since that's where we're from and that's what we're familiar with. It differs in different regions, but in the US, they've been digitalizing some of the birth certificates. So sometimes those digital copies don't contain the birth time. So you have to write in and ask specifically for the long-form birth certificate in order to get a copy of the original, mm -hmm. which should hopefully have a copy of the birth time most of the time. Yeah, and this is something that there's confusion around sometimes because sometimes people have a copy of their birth certificate and they think that that's the only one that's existed and maybe it's the one that they've had for a long time, but it was perhaps still not the long form from the very beginning. So usually copies or um, yeah, that sort of thing, when you request one, they'll send the abbreviated as a default and when you, unless you specifically request the one with the birth time. Right. So be careful about that. I mean, there's a lot of variation within that in terms of some states and things like that, some years. So, you know, unfortunately, if occasionally there's not a birth time even on the long form original, um, but most of the time it is in the US. In other countries, it can really vary. Yeah. So other things, um, you can also try to find sometimes if, if uh, your family kept like a baby book, sometimes the birth time will be written there. Mm -hmm. Other times, um, sometimes if there's like a family Bible, there's been some families that record the birth times of family members in that, mm -hmm. or just any other record that your family might have. Mm. And also hospital records. And this can actually vary um, in some countries. The hospital records are actually the default for where the birth time is versus the birth certificate. And even if it was not where you were, um, you can still check and see if the hospital where you were born kept those records. Yeah, or even in some instances, like newspaper announcements mm -hmm. occasionally have the birth time and other things like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so exhaust all those efforts. Otherwise, talk to your parents, ask them if they happen to remember your birth time. Um, parents' memories are usually ranked lower in terms of reliability compared to an actual written birth record, like the birth certificate or a baby book or something like that, just because it's often so chaotic in the birthing room that um, sometimes the parent's memory can be like wildly off unless there's some specific reason why they're just like adamant or they do have a particular reason to know exactly what time it was versus if they're just like guessing. Mm -hmm. And this is important but tricky because of course, you know, it sounds like you're second guessing your mother who was of course there birthing you and so she should know. But um, in practice, I've had a lot of clients actually say a time from mother's memory and I say, well, can you check the birth certificate? And it can be wildly off sometimes like AM versus PM, 12 hours off or um, just several hours off for whatever reason. Yeah, or even 30 minutes off can mm -hmm. sometimes make the difference and the ascendant can move from one rising zodiacal sign to another zodiacal sign and change all the houses. Right, definitely. So definitely, even if you have a memory, or I've had like family members who I was told a birth time for years, and then later I got the birth certificate and it turned out to be like wildly off. Mm -hmm. So always you know, try to find a record if you can, and then rely on memory if you can't. Mm -hmm. So even at that, um, if you're relying on the parent's memory, um, even if they don't remember the exact time you're born, uh, try to see if they know like what part of the day that you were born. Even mm -hmm. if you know that if they're able to tell you that you were born at night and it was like nighttime out, or if they're able to tell you that it was daytime out, like that makes a big difference and can help you to narrow it down. Mm -hmm. um, also, ask other family members. Sometimes, like an uncle or an aunt or uh, something like that might know. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've heard, I've had that part of the day be really helpful. Like, well, my mom has no idea, but she knows it was still dark out. And if you know it was still dark out, but you also have a date attached, then you know it wasn't like before midnight. And so it was between midnight and like sunrise. Yeah. Or for, in my example, for example, my mom and dad went to get, they went to like take my dad to get a haircut. And she was like going into labor. And they told that to like the haircut person. And, and there's this funny story about them my dad then getting this like terrible haircut <laughs> as a result of the uh, person being like really nervous when they told them that. Right, because she had to hurry. Yeah, but yeah. That, that narrows it down then that the part of the day that it would have been daytime during mm -hmm. normal business hours. So that gives you like a range to work from as opposed to just not knowing any time in an ent entire 24-hour period. Right. And in fact, on my birth certificate, it says I was born at 1.28 p.m. So they must have gone in, you know, late in the morning or or around the middle of the day for that haircut. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So narrow that down. If you can narrow that down, um, that actually might give you an option for doing rectification. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, we've already done a whole episode on rectifying your birth time, especially if you know roughly what part of the day or within a few hour time span of when you were born. Like you've actually got a pretty good chance at being able to rectify the chart, which is where you reverse engineer the chart based on events that you know and things that you know about your life in order to sort of backform what the birth time must have been. Mm -hmm. So that's called birth chart rectification. And you can see episode 169 of the astrology podcast titled Rectification Using Astrology to Find Your Birth Time for that episode. Yeah. And I want to insert that, <clears throat> excuse me, that both of us kind of use that approach, um, knowing a part of the day that you were born rather than a 24-hour period. <clears throat> Excuse me, because of course many people just quickly jump to rectification if you don't know a birth time. Um, but both of us are proponents of like having at least a part of the day narrowed down before you go to rectification, because in practice it's much more likely to get an accurate result that way. Yeah, I think you have a better chance at rectification if you have a few hour time window. And that's usually the cases where I would attempt a rectification. Whereas if you only know that the person was born on a certain day, sometime within a 24 hour period, there's many more chances of getting a false positive mm -hmm. um, because there's so many conflicting indications. There's thousands of con conflicting indications that you could get during a 24 hour period that could like make you think that the person was born. At this time, when in fact they were born at this other time where there's a similar placement that sort of repeats in a way. Exactly. And that's why it can be tricky. And you can't always jump to just rectification if you have a full 24-hour window. Right. Okay. So all of that being said, this episode is not about rectification. We just wanted to make sure that you um, you know, exhaust all of your options first and you know what's available to you uh, first before you jump to just using a birth chart without a birth time. Mm-hmm. So let's say you've exhausted all those options. Now we get onto our main topic, which is um, what can you do and how should you look at a chart that doesn't have a birth time? And let's just assume we don't have any idea within that 24-hour period. We just know what day you were born. Mm -hmm. And there's already a point there I think that you wanted to mention, which is that even if you only know the day you were born, there's still a ton of stuff you can do with that. And that actually puts you way ahead of, let's say, somebody who doesn't even know what day they were born. Yeah. I mean, knowing anything astrologically is, it's still giving you information you would not have otherwise. And so it's good to remember that and, you know, to not always compare it to like everything you could do with a, an exact birth time if that's not an option. Right. 
Okay, so just knowing your birthday, there's a lot you can do. So let's start by setting up the chart. So there's conflicting opinions here. Some people, if they, some astrologers, they will use what's called a sunrise chart or a solar chart, solar houses chart, when there's no birth time known for a client. And this is where you basically um, set the chart for the the moment that the sun rose over the eastern horizon or was conjunct the degree of the ascendant mm -hmm. um, on the day that the person was born, mm -hmm. which will be around, what, like seven o'clock in the morning or something like that? Right, give or take, depending on the part of the year. Sure. So some people will set that up using either um, different house systems, but they'll just put the sun basically on the ascendant and then they'll use whole sign houses or equal houses or quadrant houses and draw the houses from the degree of the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, this is called solar houses. I don't usually do this. I usually prefer instead to use a noon chart because if you use a noon chart, which is where you set the chart for just 12 o'clock noon, right in the middle of the day that you know the person was born, then it's going to average out the positions because since the planets can change signs during the course of a day, you actually have to be careful um, that you don't make an assumption. If you set the chart really early in the day, mm -hmm. then if the the actual birth time was actually much later in the evening, then you could end up with inaccurate sign positions. Where mm. at least if you set it right in the middle of the day, you've sort of averaged the potential um, motion that, that they could have traveled. Definitely, yeah. I do the same thing. I set it for noon, and then as part of that, I temporarily back it up twelve hours, and then move it ahead twelve hours to see does anything change within that day. Right. Um, okay, so that's really important. The, the main reason that's important, though, especially the most important reason that that's important is because of the moon. Mm -hmm. So the moon can move on average about 13 degrees during the course of a day. Right. So that means um, it changes signs about every two, two to three days, basically, mm -hmm. about every two and a half days, the moon will move into a new sign. And as a result of that, because it can move, it moves so fast compared to the other planets. Um, like the other planets, what, like Mercury and the Sun, the Sun moves about a degree a day, mm -hmm. and Mercury can move, I think, up to, what, two degrees a day or something like that when it's moving really quick? Mm -hmm. Something like that. Something like that. So if you use a noon chart that cuts in half um, the possible how far the planet could have traveled during that time frame, basically, so that you know that the Moon position at noon in that chart is only going to be a maximum of six degrees off from whatever the correct position is. Right. Yeah. And hopefully, in many cases, you know, the moon will still be in the same sign no matter what that day. And that's the, you know, that's the best case scenario. Right. That is, well, yeah, that's the best case scenario. Although sometimes, um, even then, the moon will change signs during the course of a day. Mm -hmm. I remember like a good example of this, a rectification example was back in. Um, 2008, when Barack Obama was first running for the presidency in the U.S., um, before the whole birther controversy and everything, there was a speculation. We didn't have a birth time for him, and so everyone was wondering what time he was born. And there was this interesting situation where the moon actually changed signs during the course of the day he was born, right. where it was in Taurus during one half of the day, and then later in the day it switched to Gemini. Mm -hmm. So I actually, there was like debate about this and different astrologers had different opinions, but I actually thought 
pretty early on that he probably had the moon in Gemini, which meant he must have been born later in the day, um, just because of his really strong um, oratory and his strong speaking just ability. He's just a very eloquent person, mm-hmm. and that struck me more as a Gemini moon in Gemini than a moon in in Taurus. And that later, when the birth certificate was released, turned out to be correct. So it's sort of an instance of how sometimes you can rectify. And sometimes not knowing which sign or having two options of a planet being either sign can actually help you to figure out what part of the day a person was born in and, and nudge you in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. And I remember the thing with Barack Obama too before he released his long form birth certificate was also a good example of like a cautionary tale for 24 hour rectification because, of course, like everyone was trying to release a rectification of his chart before they knew any sort of time, just the date. Right. And there were all sorts of options floating around. Yeah, definitely. There's only was like one astrologer I knew, which was um, Regulus Astrology and Doctor H, who correctly got Aquarius rising, and I always thought mm. that was pretty impressive. That is, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that later turned out to be his birth time, and and then his son, Obama's son, was in Leo, mm-hmm. and Aquarius rising, so that means he was born around sunset. Right. So that's much later in the day, in the in the very later hours. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's step one. What's our next step? Let's see. So um, so we're setting up a noon chart, basically, is what we're advocating for. Yeah. So just whatever day you were born, just set it for the city you were born in. Presumably, you know what city you were born in. Um, if you don't, then that's a whole different matter. But let's say you know what city you were born in, set it for the date that you are born, and put 12 o'clock p.m. or 12 o'clock noon as your birth time. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you basically have the whole setup of planets in signs. And that's a big piece of delineating a natal chart. Um, so hopefully almost everything or maybe everything stays in the same sign during that day. Mm-hmm. And so you can do a lot already when you know all of the planets in the signs. Yeah, so you know the planets and what signs of the zodiac they're in for the most part with a little bit of possible wiggle room for the moon or maybe the sun or maybe Mercury change signs. You want to note that if they do change signs during the course of that day. Yeah, definitely. Um, but you also have not just the planets in signs, but also the aspects between the planets, which mm-hmm. are the geometrical relationships um, and patterns that are formed between the planets in the chart that are displayed typically with the blue and red aspect lines in the center of the chart. Right. And those aren't really going to change or change much with the, maybe the exception of the moon during the course of one day. Yeah. So here is our chart for the moment right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see the aspect lines in the middle. We can see all the planets are in different signs. Um, this is actually an interesting case because Venus just changed signs today, right? Yeah. Um, well, around like 1 a.m. or something like that. It was pretty early. Pretty early here. Yeah. Let's back it up using the animate feature on Solar Fire. The program that we're using is called Solar Fire because everybody always asks. So you can get it from Alabe. Dot com and the promo code they give us is AP15 for a 15% discount. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it was very early in the morning if you're still backing that up. Okay. But it was today? I think it was around 1 a.m. if I'm remembering right. Let's see if I am. Yep. Yeah. So just after midnight, mm-hmm. just after like 12:30, between 12:30 and like 1 a.m. Yeah. So that means this person if you cast a chart for like midnight on this day, September 6th, that would have had Venus in Cancer. But if you set a, a noon chart, then it would have had Venus in Leo. Mm-hmm. 
So that just sort of illustrates some of the issues that you run into about potential sign changes. It's not a huge issue. It's just something you want to be cognizant of when you're first looking at uh, your chart yeah. and, and getting a sense for it. Right. So just write down anything that could have changed that day. Right. Okay. Um, so focus on uh, planets and signs. Focus on the aspects between the planets. Mm -hmm. You need to ignore the house placements. So even though we're setting it for noon, the sign that the ascendant is located in and your subsequent rising sign is not necessarily going to be correct. That's just like a, a placeholder, basically. Yeah. And then also you need to ignore any of the house placements because those are derived from the rising sign and the ascendant. And so those change every one to two hours whenever the rising sign itself changes. Mm -hmm. So here, when we, when we were clicking through the different signs in solar fire, I was moving it forward and backwards in uh, one hour increments. So here at 12.30, for example, the ascendant is in Scorpio. But when you move the time forward an hour, the ascendant has moved into Sagittarius by an hour later. If you move it forward a couple hours after that, the ascendant has moved into Capricorn. And each time that happens, because we're using the whole sign house system, all of the house placements of the planets are moving and changing signs as well. So for example, um, with the Sagittarius rising chart, Mercury is in the 11th whole sign house, but then as soon as it, which is the place of friends and groups and alliances, but then when it moves an hour later to Capricorn, then Mercury moves to the 10th house of career and reputation and your overall life direction. Right. Right. So we're not actually interpreting these um, planets in the houses. And it's important to note we're not actually advocating a noon chart as like a version of your chart exactly. It's just sort of a middle ground, but we're not using that as to say, you know, when you make a noon chart, then you can interpret it as a full chart. Yeah. You basically just need to ignore the ascendant, ignore the house placements, mm -hmm. and also ignore anything else that's derived from the ascendant or the house placements, such as all the lots. The lots of mm -hmm. the Arabic parts, like the part of fortune, is not going to be correct, mm -hmm. and other things like that. The main thing you need to focus on is just planets in the signs of the zodiac and the aspects between the planets. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, I think then the chart is basically set up. So let's transition now into talking about what techniques you actually can use. Mm -hmm. The first question you have to answer, though, is what do you what are you trying to accomplish? Or let's say somebody's coming to you and you're the astrologer and the person doesn't have a birth time, what kind of questions do they have and what are they looking for you to do and what are they looking to accomplish? Right, because you can either focus more on the plain birth chart um, placements, for example, in terms of delineating something about this person's life or personality or tendencies or things like that, um, if they're wondering about um, that sort of thing. Or they might conversely be wondering more about, well, what's happening for me now or what's happening for me in the next year, in which case you'd be focusing more on timing techniques that you can use without a birth time. Right. So it's good to know ahead of time um, if it is that sort of thing where people are coming to you and you have an hour or something to talk to them, what would they most like you to focus on? I've done quick readings, for example, where some people have birth times and some people don't. And sometimes if it's more of like a quick thing, you can just see what's kind of most striking. But most of the time, if people are coming to you for like a full session or something, um, or even if it's someone you know, but you have plenty of time to talk, you can see, well, what are they actually wondering more about? Which, which part? Right. So there's a difference between 
basically like interpretive techniques where you're just looking at the birth chart and you're interpreting placements and what they mean about the person's life and character as a whole, sort of like universal statements you can make about the person's life based on their birth chart. And then the other thing that you can look at that is somewhat separate is timing techniques based on if a person, either you or your client, is trying to figure out when something will happen or if something will happen in the future, mm -hmm. there's different timing techniques that you can apply whether you have a birth time or not. Right. So let's start by looking at just interpretive techniques and what interpretive techniques you can actually still use even if you don't have a birth time and you're just trying to interpret the birth chart on its own. Mm -hmm. All right. So the first one that we've already talked about is the um, zodiacal signs that the planets are located in should be pretty stable. Mm -hmm. um, and the aspects between the planets should be pretty stable. So those are basically going to be your two main things. And those already account for, like that's already like a huge chunk of astrology, basically, like planets and signs and aspects between planets, right? Mm -hmm, definitely. And especially if you're talking to someone who doesn't know a lot about astrology or doesn't know anything about their own chart yet before this conversation, um, you know, there's still a lot to be told from just even interpreting like every planet in a sign and which which placements are playing together in an aspect. You can talk about that for a while. Right. Like, um, so part of this is talking is using the planets as general significators mm -hmm. for different topics and different things. So Mercury, for example, as being the significator for how a person communicates. Mm -hmm. um, which can be like different characteristics in terms of um, the way that they communicate or the quality of how they communicate both in speaking as well as in writing or other forms like that just by looking at the mercury placement, mm -hmm. like the difference between somebody that um, has mercury, let's say in Leo and is more like showy or overt versus somebody that has like, let's say mercury in Scorpio and tends to be more um, not the opposite, but more covert or more mm -hmm. um, sort of penetrating in terms of the way that they speak and communicate, more forceful in their communication. Right, which can also extend to even things like your internal thinking style before you even say or write anything. And that can actually be profound to hear reflected back to you, those sorts of things about yourself if you've never heard them before. Yeah, so some of those are, are character traits and um, some sort of expanding on that more. So there's general significations of the planets in the signs and those characteristics that can mean things. Um, should we expand on that more or talk mm. about like modifications based on aspects? Because um, the other thing that can happen is that those traits can be modified um, in different ways depending on what other planets are, are aspecting or creating close geometrical relationships with those planets. Mm -hmm. So for example, like a hard aspect of a conjunction or a square in opposition from Saturn to Mercury could um, hamper the communication style in some way or make the person more reticent to communicate or run into some sort of challenges in terms of expressing themselves through communication. Mm -hmm, for sure. Or take, for example, like Venus for relationships. So Venus is a general significator for relationships as well as aesthetics, uh, aesthetic preferences and things like that. Um, so and that is like a big topic. I would say career and relationships are big ones that people like to ask astrologers about. So if you have, if you don't have a chart with birth time, for instance, you can't talk about the seventh house of partnership, you can still say a lot about Venus. So Venus, what sign is it in, in terms of what kind of, um, what kind of qualities are you attracted to in a partner, for instance, or how do you make yourself attractive to partners? 
And then Venus in like a major aspect with other planets. Um, I think you did like a whole episode on that once, right? Like Venus in aspect to the outer planets. Um, yeah, it was titled The Outer Planets in Relation in Relationships with Kay Taylor. And it was talking about how the outer planets manifest in relationships when they're tied in either with the Venus as a general significator of relationships, or if the outer planets are tied in with the seventh house in a person's chart or the ruler of the seventh house. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, so you can so general significators are just planets that can signify different topics generally in a person's life, depending on what sign the they're placed in and what aspects they have from other planets. Mm-hmm. So Venus for relationships, Mercury for communication. What are some mm-hmm. of the other ones? Um, the Sun for kind of like core identity or like your self concept, mm-hmm. um, how you go about things in your life. The Moon, I th- I like to talk about um, in terms of people's like instinctual emotional um, styles of processing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, emotions. Uh, the planets can also signify other people in the life, and sometimes the luminaries. Can signify like the parents or the relationships with the parents, like the sun's condition in the chart as the father or the moon's condition as the mother. Mm-hmm. And there's different ways to approach that, just in terms of general significators or Venus as representing like uh, not just relationships in general, but sometimes the relationship partner mm-hmm. in a person's life if you're in a committed long term relationship. Right. Or the moon as a general significator for home and family sometimes, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. In your living situation. Mm hmm. Um, okay. So let's see other significators like um, Mars, for example. Mm-hmm. So Mars, like kind of your assertion style, how you go after things or how you're motivated to go after things. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jupiter can indicate areas of growth and how you grow and expand as a general significator, whereas Saturn can signify more like areas of contraction. Mm-hmm. Um, from a psychological standpoint, it can also indicate like apprehensions or fears that a person has. Mm-hmm. Right. And then some of these, we'll get into this in a bit, but they tie into like later timing cycles as well once you identify what these signs are. Right. Um, okay. So, and then each of those, so, so just in and of itself, there's a lot that you can say about. Um, the sign that a planet is placed in in characterizing uh, different qualities associated with the significations of that planet in the person's life. And then the aspects between the planets can um, modify the expression of different planets in the chart and how those significations are expressed. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about like Mercury's communication. Um, so going back to that, like I mentioned, like Mer- Saturn, Aspecting Mercury through a hard aspect can be challenging, let's say, for communication. Mm-hmm. Whereas, let's say it's like an easier, a flowing aspect, like let's say Saturn is trining Mercury, that could just make the person more methodical as a thinker or more um, struck, well structured in the way that they think and communicate. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Um, or Venus aspects, you talked about relationships, and that can. Uh, typify the how the person relates to different people or the type of people that a person can attract in, into their life in some ways. Right. Yeah. So you can go through any of the combinations of Venus, like in a hard aspect to the, any of the other planets. Um, or, you know, say like you have a, like a, a Venus-Uranus combination in a hard aspect or something. Like sometimes people, if they've never heard this about their chart before, that could be just so illuminating in itself saying like, oh, well, you attract um, really unconventional partners, or you have sudden beginnings and endings with relationships and things like that. And people can, you know, be kind of amazed that that can reflect um, so accurately what they've experienced. 
Right. Or like Venus Neptune, you can tend to be very idealistic in relationships mm-hmm. or aspects, especially the hard aspects, but even to a lesser extent, <clears throat> the soft aspects or um, let's see, Saturn Venus aspects. Saturn Venus aspects can be like relationships, either feeling like they take more effort or sometimes working out better later in life, or sometimes like feeling like effortful for a while, but then still having relationships that last a long time, um, sort of at its best. Right. Um, yeah, Venus Saturn. So there's lots of different combinations like that. And people should pay attention not just to degree-based aspects, which is usually what the aspect lines in a chart will show, which are the aspects that are really close to exact. <clears throat> but also, sometimes sign-based aspects are things you should pay attention to as well, mm-hmm. um, and especially knowing that a planet is, that is earlier in the order of signs uh, is going to have a dominant influence over a planet that it's aspecting later in the order of signs. That can also be useful information just in terms of um, understanding how the aspects are playing out in your chart and which planets are playing a more dominant role uh, in influencing other planets in the chart. Definitely. And I would definitely echo and second the sign-based aspects, both in terms of the natal delineation as well as the timing. Um, Even if you think they don't look very close in degree and so maybe they don't matter, sign-based aspects really do still work. Um, It's just they get more intensified when they're closer by degree. Yeah, so it's like if you have, um, let's say, Venus in the same sign as Neptune, even if they're really far away from each other, then you've got basically a loose Venus-Neptune conjunction. Mm -hmm. And the way that you would normally uh, delineate a Venus-Neptune conjunction about having um, highly idealistic relationships would still be present there. It may not be as intense, but it's still going to be probably a part of that person's personality and a part of that person's life. Definitely. And same for any planets in a sign that is square to each other, a sign in opposition to each other, regardless of degree. Yeah. So Saturn squaring the moon, for example, by sign. Mm -hmm. And some of that then is going to come up in transits later once we get to timing, although maybe we should put that off a little bit. Mm, Sure. Okay. So um, aspects, focus on aspects, focus on sign placements, of course, those are going to be your two main things. Mm -hmm. Um, Because really, Western astrology, the primary the fundamental foundation of birth charts is really just based on four things. It's based on planets, signs of the zodiac, um, aspects, and houses. Right. So you've got three of those four things here. You're just right. taking out the fourth one, which is the houses when you don't have a birth time, mm-hmm. but you still have like 75% of the system. Right, which is good to think about it that way. You actually have a lot still. Yeah. Okay, so other things that are relevant that um, you can pay attention to if you don't have a birth time are aspect patterns. Mm-hmm. So I just did an episode, episode 266 of the Astrology Podcast was titled Aspect Patterns in Astrology with Carol Taylor. And aspect patterns were defined there as um, a geometrical relationship in a chart where there's three planets, three or more planets that are creating close configurations or close aspects with each other simultaneously, basically at the same time. Mm -hmm. So anytime you have three or more planets that are closely configured to each other through one of the recognized aspects, you have an aspect pattern. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's something to know, good to know about in itself and also something that will then get simultaneously triggered by later transits. Yeah. So there's different aspects like a like a T square, for example, which is when you have two planets that are opposing each other. And then there's a third planet 
that is squaring both of those two planets in opposition simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And especially if that those three aspects are close together, if the opposition is within a few degrees and the square is within a few degrees, um, then right away just that aspect pattern in and of itself can be interpreted as meaning something, that there's a tension between the two planets that are in aspect, um, but then there's the potential for some sort of re- resolution through the third planet that's squaring both of them at the same time, that there's mm-hmm. like a release valve on the opposition, and so that general configuration has some sort of inherent meaning on its own. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, aspect patterns are a major thing that you can still do, and that's largely still accurate, and you can interpret the majority of even without a birth time. So check out that episode with Carol Taylor for more about that. Right. And most of those should be stable in your chart, regardless of the time of day, unless it was the moon as one of the planets. And even then, it would be in the vicinity. Yeah. For the most part, you'll probably still have it um, as long as you were, it's not like, as long as your birth time wasn't on the extreme ends of very early in the day or very late in the day. Right. Okay. So that's one thing. Um Let's see. The next thing that we can talk about is just general interpretive placements. Um, the lunar phase can should be generally known, or you should be able to know roughly what lunar phase you are in. Mm-hmm. So the lunar phase has to do if the moon is um, waxing. So it's waxing in the first half of the lunar month for like fourteen days after the after the new moon, and it's increasing in light and it's getting brighter and brighter and brighter until eventually it hits the full moon. And then the moon starts decreasing in light and getting darker and darker and darker for another 14 days until eventually it reaches the next new moon and the cycle starts over again. Mm-hmm. So astrologers typically divide that entire cycle of 28 days, the lunar cycle, up into different portions. And especially sometimes in like modern psychological astrology, there's different um, character traits that are associated with different parts of that cycle depending on where you were born into it. Right. It can have something to say about kind of how you approach life in a general way. Um, Yeah. And kind of whether you're more like extroverted or more retiring or different traits like that. Right. Um, So I know Demetra has a treatment of that. I think she has talks about a little bit in astrology and the authentic self, I believe, right? Um, I think so. I'm trying to remember. She has some other books. She also talks about it with... um, like finding our way through the dark, maybe? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So she has other books on that. So that's a good technique that you can use sometimes or another thing that's not hugely dependent on the birth time. Because as long as the moon is relatively narrowed down, it's largely going to be in the same range. Right. It's still only going to be like 12 degrees off, you know, from the beginning of the, to the end of the day. And so compared to the sun placement, that's still going to put you roughly in the same lunar phase, regardless. Right. Um, one other technique. It's not really a technique, but one other thing that I want to mention is the environment you're raised in, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, how the environment that a person is raised in matters um, in terms of how they sometimes grow into certain placements, and that that's an important element in terms of understanding where a person's coming from and how one person experience, especially let's say they were born on the same day mm. and have the same birth chart, but they were born into a different family. Mm-hmm. And the difference between one person who grows up with, let's say, parents who instill um, positive like moral traits on the person, let's say the person has a difficult aspect in their chart. Let's say they have like a Mercury-Mars square, for example, and Mercury 
as a general significator indicates communication, and Mars as a general significator can sometimes indicate fighting mm -hmm. or conflict. Right. So the person might have a tendency to get into like verbal conflicts or to um, sort of spout off verbally at people and mm -hmm. maybe like, let's say, not say nice things, or maybe even have like incisive um, communication with other people. Mm -hmm. So there might be one person that was born with that who. Um, is raised in an environment and with family members who try to instill, instill relatively positive moral um, values in the person. And that person grows up sort of learning how to keep some of those tendencies in check. And while some of that may still come up from time to time, and it may still be part of their personality on some level, they may um, use it in a way that's more constructive or more positive than they could otherwise. Versus there could be another person that's born in a different scenario where maybe their parents um, really encourage some of like their worst impulses, or for some reason the the childhood environment um, encourages many of the worst impulses of some of those placements so that they develop almost as if it was like a plant in a much like different way that's not as positive. And instead, is more of a negative expression of those placements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely one variable for sure um, that can play a part in like how these are expressed at a given time. You know, another, of course, is these two people are born on the same day, but you know, at actual different times. Even though we don't know what time it was, it could be more or less relevant to in the chart. Maybe Mercury is the ascendant ruler. It turns out, but we don't know that. And so this is actually expressing this Mercury-Mars square is actually something very personal to that person and how they express themselves versus it's ruling the <clears throat> fourth house of home family parents. And so maybe it was actually one of the parents that expresses that the most in the person's life. And so that's one of the things you have to keep in mind while we are saying that you can say certain things about um, some of these placements without a birth time based on the signs that planets are in and the aspects they make to each other, it is still good to remember the variable of this could, you know, there's some theoretical birth time out there that we don't know. And so this could be more or less expressing through like that actual person versus someone else in their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So the birth time matters and can change the topics in the chart and where some of the energies of the planetary aspects and placements manifest in a person's life. Right. And whether they're expressed sometimes even by the person themselves and whether the person takes on the agency of certain planets or whether the agency of those planets are expressed through other people in their lives. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so this also brings up so so part of that's like a, a nature versus nurture versus nurture debate, but it also has to do with um, the sinistry that you have with your parents and with different family members, mm -hmm. which is that you don't just have your own birth chart, but you also each of your parents has a birth chart. And the way that their birth chart interacts with your own is going to be positive and flowing and, and potentially supportive in some areas of your chart. But in other areas of your chart, there could be tension or there could be conflicts. And that probably also typifies um, how a person is raised and what parts of their chart get emphasized to a certain extent as well. Yeah, definitely. So some things will kind of be activated in more more pleasant or positive ways, and sometimes kind of in harsher or you know more conflictual ways, depending on who's around you and how your birth charts are interacting. Yeah. So, but that's another thing that you can do for the most part, even without a birth time, is synastry. Mm -hmm. Is you can look at the synastry between. Um, 
the relationship astrology basically between your chart and other people's charts and the aspects between them so that if you have like um your sun at like 15 degrees of virgo and you see somebody else who has their moon at like 15 degrees of Virgo, then you know that you have a, a sort of good chart connection with them. Mm-hmm, exactly. And you can do that with most of your placements without a birth time. Yeah, because it's it's mainly just focusing on aspects, and most of the planetary placements won't move too far during the course of a day. Right. So for the most part, synastry and relationship astrology is something that you can do relatively successfully even without a birth time. Mm-hmm, true. At, at least in terms of determining um, areas of ease or areas of challenge between the two charts, because that's often mainly expressed through the aspects between the two charts. Right. You can do that piece. You sometimes can't do all the timing surrounding it um, that you might otherwise, but yeah, you can definitely do how they're relating to each other. Right. Um, You can also do composite charts to a certain extent, right? Because Mm -hmm. a composite chart is just when you take two charts and you average the placements and it creates a third chart. Yeah. You won't be able to use the houses, but you can pay attention to the aspects if you if you want to use a composite chart. Yeah, which can I mean it's actually kind of an advanced quasi advanced thing that you could do without a birth time. You know, it's kind of surprising that you can still do things like that without a birth time. Right. Um. Because yeah, it won't give you the houses. It won't give you the ascendant of the composite, but um, you can still see. You know, do you have more harmonious things going on in the composite third party of the relationship chart, or do you have things that are harsher, or you? know what have you mm-hmm. yeah yeah um all right so those are all of the main interpretive techniques in terms of just looking at a chart and looking at your birth chart and what you can get from it it's primarily those three areas of planet signs aspects and largely just leaving out houses altogether unless you rectify the chart or unless you find your birth time mm-hmm. um there's a whole other area that we need to go into which is timing techniques which is determining um not just like what will happen in a person's life, but when it will happen. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of timing techniques that you can still use even without a birth time, and that's that's the good news. Yeah, definitely. And you can always use transits, which is like a lot. You can say a lot by transiting planets happening in aspect to um, your birth chart placements. Right. So a transit is where the planets will be so you have your birth chart, which is your your base or your foundation chart, and is a snapshot of where the planets were at the moment you were born. And then all of the planets keep moving. So transits are looking at where the planets will be in the future relative to where they were at the moment of your birth as activating certain placements in your birth chart. Mm-hmm. Right. Or where are they right now? And what are they doing in aspect to your birth chart placements? Right. So for the most part, you can do that. Um, Some of the sun-moon transits may be slightly off, so you want to be careful about those two because the sun can move up to a degree during the course of a day. Mm -hmm. Some of those transits could be off by a degree, so you want to be a little bit careful. I think that's one of the other good arguments for using a noon chart, though, in order to mitigate how far off the sun can be because if you use a noon chart, you've averaged it so that it can only be like half a degree off probably at most. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, whereas the moon, even using a noon chart, it can be up to six degrees off. So that can throw some transits off much further. So you have to be a little bit more careful in terms of looking at natal transits to your moon, at least by de- exact degree. Exactly. You can still, for the most part, as long as you've narrowed down the correct sign your moon is in, you can do whole sign transits to the moon. So, for mm-hmm. example, um, if transiting Saturn, is going through your moon sign, you're going to be feeling that for the most part for the entirety of 
Saturn moving through that sign for two to three years. Right. And it will grow more intense when it gets to the exact degree, but um, it's operative the entire time that it's moving through that sign. Right, for sure. And I mean, if you know the window of how far the moon could move that day, you can also tell someone else, you know, whose chart you're looking at who doesn't have a birth time, you know, while you don't know exactly when the Saturn moon transit will be exact by degree and minute, you can say this will be the range in which it should feel most intense. So there's still things you can say like that. Right. Okay. Um, Let's see. So, what are their transits? You don't know what houses the transits are moving through. Right. So, if there's any reports that you're looking at <clears throat> or websites like astro.com, if they start talk talking about what houses like Saturn or Jupiter or something are moving through, you have to disregard that because without a birth time, you can't know which uh, houses the planets are transiting through. Right. But any transiting aspects to natal placements. Especially placements besides the sun and moon, and to a lesser extent, Mercury, if it's moving quickly, will all be relatively accurate um, for for the entirety of your life. Mm -hmm. Right. Something I really like um, that doesn't require birth time is the life stage transits to talk about, and especially if someone doesn't know much or any astrology, you know, just talking about. The Saturn return, if someone's in that, talking about the midlife transits, like the Saturn opposition, Uranus opposition that happened from the late 30s to mid 40s, talking about those things can be actually pretty profound, especially if you, you talk about the natal Saturn placement, for instance, if you're talking about the Saturn cycle. Um, and then talking about the actual aspect that it's in now by transit, that can tell you a whole lot or give the other person a lot to think through. And I think that's Another thing that's important to bring in here is it's not only about things that you can say, but it's also about things that you can spark as reflection within that person. Maybe they have access to information. Well, they certainly have access to information about their own life that you don't know if you're talking to someone else. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, so you say, well, this was your Saturn return during 2000 or something. And then now you're in your Saturn opposition, and that will relate to the same themes from during that time. And that can spark a whole lot of thought and conversation. Yeah, definitely. Um, if you're doing a consultation with somebody, so life stage transits. It's not just the Saturn return is between the ages of like 27 and 30 when Saturn returns to its natal sign. Mm -hmm. That's something you can do without um, knowing the birth time, and with that Saturn moves so slowly that you actually also know the exact degree of the natal Saturn, mm -hmm. so that you know when it, it goes exact as well and when it's going to be most intense. Right. And then, you know, every seven to eight years, there's going to be the next hard aspect of the transiting Saturn cycle to its natal placement, which is an ongoing thing you can talk about. Okay. So also the uh, the waxing square of Saturn when it's like um, after seven years of the conjunction, you eventually start squaring itself by sign mm -hmm. or its natal placement by sign for two to three years. And then the Saturn opposition for two to three years when mm -hmm. it's going through its opposite sign, right. the waning square, and then finally the Saturn return. Right. Okay. So Saturn transits and Saturn cycles are really, really good for studying um, long-term transits and cycles and themes in a person's life. Mm -hmm. And also, if you, <clears throat> one of the things we've always found, especially when we used to do our blog Saturn return stories, is that you'll see echoes of the same topics coming up over and over again right. when Saturn makes that hard aspect to its natal placement every seven years. Right. So um, 
that's good if you can go back and hear a person's and study a person's history in seven-year increments roughly because you'll start to get a sense for the themes pretty quickly and then you can project that out into the future in terms of what they can expect when that same hard aspect from Saturn comes up again in, in the future. Right. And that's why it can be so fruitful because it's kind of like a major and longer term transit that keeps repeating those same themes. And um, it also has to do with life structures. And so that's why it's also useful to track um, over time. It just can be kind of like a major player in a person's biography. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can even do interesting things like, okay, well, you're in your Saturn opposition now, you're in your mid 40s. Well, you, you had one before when you were around 14. And it can actually be kind of amazing to see the same themes come up at this at those times. Yeah, so Saturn transits are big. Other life stage transits I know that you like to work with are Uranus aspects and Uranus transits, especially the hard aspects to its natal position, which are things like the Saturn square or the Uranus square mm-hmm. and then the Uranus opposition. Opposition as part of the midlife transits in particular. But yeah, you can also trace that um, by hard aspect as well and see, you know, what's coming up right now. Um, oh, I'm suddenly feeling like breaking out of my rut and changing everything in my life. Well, of course you are because you're in this major Uranus aspect. So that can be really interesting to talk about even in itself. Yeah. So Uranus has like an 84 year cycle. So what are the ranges for like the first Uranus square in the opposition? Right. So around age 21, give or take, for the first square. And then the opposition is around like 42, 43, give or take. Um, you know, it'll be over the course of a couple of years usually that it goes back and forth by degree mm-hmm. in terms of the exact degrees. Um, and then I think it's like 63, give or take, for the next one. Yeah. And then 84 for the actual return. Okay. All right, so that's another thing you can do with that. You pay more attention, especially to the degree of the exact um, squares and oppositions to its natal position, right? Right, and again, that's a nice one, just like Saturn and outward, really probably what, like Jupiter and outward, it's it's pretty stable. Like you're gonna get a pretty exact placement even if you don't know the time of day. Right, yeah, definitely. Um, Okay, so, and we've talked about whole sign versus degree-based aspects and transits. Um, Another thing that you can do, which you mentioned, is perfected house topics. Right. So even though when we're talking about perfections, the basic technique is going from the ascendant, and it's um, by age. So you're counting around however many houses you are in um, years. But they always occur with the same house topics, the same house perfection for the same age. So even if you don't know what signs are involved or planets are involved, you can say for everyone at age 30, you're going to be in a seventh house perfection year. And so as long as you know that person is 30, even if you don't know what their seventh house, seventh house is doing, you know, without a birth time, you can say relationships or if they do client work, clients or other major one-on-one interactions are going to come to the forefront of your life more than usual this year and are going to be um, sort of more of a focused theme for you until your next birthday. And that's actually a lot to be able to say as well, even if you don't know the specifics to go beyond that with like a sign and sign rulership. Right. So even if you don't know the ascendant and you can't know what sign to start from, you at least know generally everybody who's 30 years old is in a seventh house perfection year, so relationships should be more prominent. Right. Um, 27 is a fourth house perfection year, so mm-hmm. like home Sometimes parents or living situation can become more prominent. Mm-hmm. Um, like 33 and 45 and 21, those are all 10th house years. And so anyone at that age, any of those ages, you can say career um, and your public reputation are going to be much more important this year than usual. Okay. So that's a good 
general one that you can do without a birth time. Additionally, I would say <clears throat> you can perfect from, in Hellenistic astrology, in the more advanced approach to perfections, you're actually supposed to perfect not just from the ascendant, but also from the sect light and from the other luminary that is contrary to the sect. Mm -hmm. So basically, you're also supposed to perfect from the sun and the moon in the advanced method of annual perfections. And I've actually found consistently over and over again um, that oftentimes like I'll put most of my emphasis on perfecting from the ascendant, but sometimes when a major event happens in a person's life, and I just it just did not show up in the perfections from the ascendant. When I perfect from the sect light, which is the sun in a day chart or the moon in a night chart, it will always be like spot on and it'll be right there. And I would have seen it ahead of time if I had just been consistently perfecting from the sect light, which is something I've been trying to get myself to do more consistently for years now. Right. Um, so that's a little tricky because you can only determine the sect light if you know if the person was born during the day or at night. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know an entire 24-hour period, you can't necessarily do that. Right. If you have narrowed it down so that you know the person was born during the day or at night, then you can do perfections from the sect light, and that's a great technique to use mm -hmm. to help you identify what the activated sign of the zodiac is that year and what the ruler of that sign is will become activated as one of the important time lords for the year. Right. And so you just perfect the same number of signs as you would for the general ascendant perfection. So seven signs from the sun if you were born during the day and you're in a seventh house perfection year, for instance. Yeah. And if you have, let's say, like um, Saturn there in that sign, that's going to be experienced much differently in that seventh sign from the sun mm -hmm. than if you have, let's say, Jupiter there in that sign. Mm -hmm. um, that's going to be a much different, more different experience. Right, right. And so you're when you're perfecting from um, the, the sect light, you're basically saying this um, this is going to be something, especially if there's a planet there, this is going to be something about the quality of that year is why you would be doing that. Yeah, the quality of that year and also the ruler of that sign mm -hmm. um, becoming more activated in its transits. So mm -hmm. if you have important transits either to that planet in your natal chart or transits by that planet in that year, they're going to be more crucial. Right. Um, or even if you have let's say planets transiting through the perfected sign from the sect light, mm -hmm. those are going to be more important. So for example, if um, right now if Aries is the perfected sign from your sect light, well, Mars is like stationing retrograde in Aries this month. So mm -hmm. that may mean that that Mars retrograde period is going to be much more important for you than it would be otherwise. Definitely. And we've done a couple episodes now on perfections in the past, right? Yeah, we've done. I did a solo, like long lecture, like a 90 minute lecture on it, which people can find on the podcast. And then we did at least one episode with an audience where we sort of demonstrated the technique in practice with different example charts from from the audience. Right. So if you want to hear more about perfections and don't know about them, there are, there's another episode to listen to. Yeah. So just search for annual perfections on the astrology podcast and that stuff will come up. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you could perfect from either of them, right? If you don't know. Yeah. I mean, in reality, so if you don't know your sect light and you don't know what part of the day you're born, it's fine to just perfect from both um, because all the sect light does is it tells you which luminary to emphasize and which one's going to be more important so you can narrow things down. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know your, whether you're born during the day or night, if you don't have any idea during a 24-hour period, then just perfect from both of the luminaries. And that's just going to tell you two signs that are going to be more important that year. Mm -hmm. And then you run through all the same things. Right. And I mean, even through that, if you do that for a number of years over and over again, 
you may find yourself coming back to, you know, this one seemed to work more consistently than this one. And that might start mm-hmm. pushing you in a certain direction of sort of thinking that maybe you were born during the day or born during the night. Right. Right. And I mean, that's a good point more broadly is if you are working, say, with your own chart over time and you don't know when you were born and have no idea what what part of the day or anything, um, there are other things like that that you can just kind of watch for. And it might take a while. Um, but if you do keep kind of close track of like how transits are hitting or that sort of thing, or say like when trans- if your moon was like close to changing signs, and Saturn gets close to like the end of the one sign and then the beginning of the next sign. Well, which one felt more intense? There are things like that you can track over the course of like your lifetime and, you know, get a better sense of what it might be, even if you never get any records. Yeah. I mean, is that a meta point that <clears throat> anybody that doesn't know their birth time, that this will become like part of your quest as an astrologer to sort of find your birth time or to, to narrow it down to some extent, that that becomes part of your work as an astrologer, that it's always going to be there in the back of your mind. I mean, I don't want to mm. instill that too much since on the one hand, we're trying to do two things here in this episode where um, we want to make it more acceptable and, and make people realize that there's a lot that you can do even if you don't know your birth time. And mm-hmm. so we don't necessarily want people to feel bad about that or to feel inadequate or that you can't use astrology because there's still lots and lots of techniques. And that's what we're trying to demonstrate here that you can use even without a birth time. Mm-hmm. But certainly um, having the rectification in the back of your mind will still be something that may be there to some extent, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. And I think it depends on like how invested you are as well. Because um, if you just kind of want to know your chart, but you're otherwise not focusing on astrology a lot during your, your lifetime, um, it probably doesn't matter that much you know, for you to have to keep working at it. But if you're like a professional astrologer yourself, or it's a very serious hobby, I just think naturally you would do that. I mean, I would, I guess, if it were me. Um, just because so much of astrology is about observation and correlations and things like that. And people often have a sort of research-oriented mind sometimes at least um, mm. when they get into astrology that I think they would kind of want to pay attention to when things like that hit and you know gave them clues one way or the other. I mean, I know I'm following – like, there's plenty of people's charts, either personally like celebrity charts that I'm still following where it's not even my birth time and I'm still invested <laughs> in figuring out what their birth time is. Like I've been trying to track down like Kanye West's birth time or rectify it for the better part of a decade and, and other people like that. <laughs> right, right. So like I said, it depends on how invested you are. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, rectification and that being in the back of your mind to some extent. At the same time, I would also encourage people not to be too quick to settle on a firm rectification, especially early in your studies. Mm-hmm. Because I know one thing we also emphasized in our rectification episode is the um, – not temporary, but like preliminary or like provisional nature of rectification mm-hmm. and that you can sometimes be wrong. And even a rectification that looks very good could still be wrong due to false positives. Right. So um, especially early in your studies when you're still getting a sense of things, I would avoid I would advise people to avoid jumping to conclusions and rushing to firm and like fast and hard conclusions, even if that's tempting sometimes, because as your knowledge of astrology grows and develops, you're going to get better at it. And you want to remain open to alternative possibilities instead of just like deciding that you're definitely this rising sign because mm-hmm. of some preconception that you have about what that means. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you remained more open later, you might um, 
end up finding the correct rising sign, even if it was different than what you initially assumed? Yeah, I definitely agree. And I actually, when I've done rectifications for clients, I'll tell them, you know, once I find a probable rising sign, I'll say, okay, I'm pretty sure this is it. But I'll also tell them all, always like upcoming transits to watch for to either further confirm that or to cast some question about it. And I've actually had people email me back, you know, in a few months and say, oh, this transit hit and it actually does seem to be, you know, affecting that topic. And I'm like, yeah, it, that sounds like it's further confirmation. So Right. Okay. Um, all right. So going back to our our outline, uh -huh. where, where are we at at I this point? I think secondary progressions is next. Okay. So another completely different timing technique, aside from perfections that you can use as secondary progressions, um, this doesn't really require an exact birth time. Um, you can't pay attention to like the progressed ascendant or progressed house placements, but you can pay attention to um, progressed planets, especially when those planets are making aspects to each other. Like I, I always pay attention, especially to um, secondary progressed planet aspects to other secondary progressed planet aspects, mm -hmm. and then also especially planetary stations. Mm -hmm. So if a planet during the course of a year or two turns retrograde or direct by secondary progression. Those are typically really important turning points in a person's life, especially with inner planets like Mercury or Venus or Mars. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, hopefully your moon doesn't turn retrograde. <laughs> yeah, we we want to hear if if it does, but yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and on, so with secondary progressions, on the one hand, things don't change frequently, which is why it's not one of my like top tier timing things that I use for consultations, but I do actually look at them still to make sure that nothing important is happening because once in a while it will. And stations are certainly one of those things. They don't happen, they'll happen like maybe once, maybe twice in someone's life for Mercury, um, but usually just once, if that, and sometimes not at all. So they're infrequent, but yeah, you pay attention because they are important, you know, infrequent things if they do happen. Unfortunately, you can't track the progressed moon if you have a whole 24-hour period of a birth time because it could be half a sign away. Yeah, the progressed moon, unfortunately, could be pretty far off. And even though, for the most part, because the moon moves fast, relatively fast in secondary progressions, that's what people focus on typically the most yeah. in secondary progressions. That's actually going to be the one you're going to have the most problems with in terms of it being potentially the furthest off. Um, it'll be within like a sign of correct, but you mm -hmm. want to be careful about focus on, focusing on that too much unless you've narrowed down your birth time further. But you can pay attention to other things like when planets change signs. Mm -hmm. So not so much the moon, but other planets like the sun or mm -hmm. Mercury or Venus or Mars. Right. Like the progressed sun will always change signs about every 30 years, for instance. And that can mark kind of like a new chapter in your life or kind of a new subtone in your personality or things of that nature. Yeah. So that may not be something that you can use usefully on like a day to day basis in the same way that you can with transits, which move much faster. But it's something that if you're trying to look at the broad scope of an entire person's life and look for important events, um, secondary progressions can be useful about noticing some important turning points that can happen at different stages in a person's life. Mm -hmm. And you can also look at, for instance, when progressed planets make an exact aspect to a natal planet, that can be important. Mm -hmm. All right. So secondary progressions. Another one that in the survey that I put out that a lot of people mentioned was solar arcs. Um, this is something I used to use a little 
bit more in the early 2000s, and I don't as much anymore, but you basically direct each of the planetary placements almost forward, forward almost a degree per year, and then eventually look at what happens when they aspect exact make exact aspects with natal positions. Mm -hmm. So for most of the planets, you could do that pretty easily, especially the outer planets. Um, you can't really do that with the moon with solar arcs because it could mm -hmm. be way off by like up to six years. Yeah. If you're using a noon chart, the sun could be a little bit off, but not too far. So the sun is largely going to be usable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't use solar arcs personally, but I know if that is one of your go-to um, techniques, that is something that's fairly usable without a birth time. Yeah, it's something that's worth exploring as a timing technique that's not as dependent on the birth time as some other techniques, like, mm -hmm. like zodiac releasing, for example. I've also been looking into recently um, something called like symbolic directions in this book by Charles Carter, where solar arcs are kind of weird because it's based on the motion of the sun, and it's like almost a degree per year, but it's not actually. It depends on how fast the sun is moving, and sometimes it moves. Um, less than a degree per year. So it's like a variable rate mm. and it's not consistent necessarily. Um, but apparently, I, I've learned in the past few months that there is like a consistent version of the technique, which is just symbolically directing everything exactly one degree per year. Mm. And I'm much more interested in that because it seems like a nice analog to the annual perfections technique where it's directing things one sign per year mm. to move them forward one degree. Mm. So I haven't researched that much yet, but I'm interested in looking into it more. Mm, maybe a future episode? Definitely. Yep. All right. And finally, um, my friend Nick Dick and Best mentioned Venus retrograde cycles and Mars retrograde cycles is something you can look for. Right. So for example, when Venus goes retrograde, it'll go retrograde for about 40 days in a specific sign of the zodiac. And because of how Venus's cycles work, it will always go retrograde in the same roughly the same spot in the zodiac approximately every 8 years. Mm -hmm. So sometimes those 8-year increments can tie together different chapters in a person's life um, when Venus goes retrograde for different different reasons. Right. And so that again is something that you don't need an exact birth time for and it's something you can kind of track similar themes over time just like some of the transit cycles. Yeah, and Nick has Entire lectures where he demonstrates how to do that and how you can use, he's used like untimed charts of major events and major um, prominent world figures and shown how the eight year Venus cycles can sometimes tie together these crucial turning points in their life in these eight year increments. Mm -hmm. um, that's also true to a lesser extent, or to some extent, also with Mars retrograde cycles, which are in 15 year increments. Right. So kind of longer chunks of your life, but still can be interesting to trace back and see what the commonalities were of the themes that come up at those times. Right. So that's basically like a extension of studying transits because it's basically yeah. a type of transit, but it's studying a specific phase of the transit, which is the retrograde cycle. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, I think that those were all of the major techniques that we wrote down mm -hmm. to review. Um, are there any major techniques that we forgot about that can be used? I'm trying to think really quickly without a birth time that we should mention. I mean, there are some that are sort of like iffy but possible at different times, like say eclipse cycles. I mean, eclipse cycles will still happen approximately every eight to nine years in the same two opposing signs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but you won't know what where they're landing by house, but say they're landing close to um, a natal placement. You can kind of track that over time. Yeah. So, so that's kind of in between. 
to paying attention to eclipses because eclipses will take place for a good year and a half, almost mm-hmm. two years in the same pair of signs right. opposite to each other. And so sometimes when it moves into a new pair of signs, it'll start hitting like planets in your chart and that can be important. Mm-hmm. So that's another extension of like how you can use transits and different types of transits, even without a birth time. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there are any others that we've missed. I'm, nothing's coming to mind. Okay. Well, um, I'm kind of shocked then because we've somehow <laughs> done this episode in about 75 minutes. So it's wow. almost like a normal lecture thing, I guess, because we jumped right into it. Right. Yeah. That's surprisingly short for, for your usual. Yeah. I'm a little disturbed by that. <laughs> I feel like there must be like a page that dropped out that we're missing from this. There's not though, is there? No, I don't think there is. Okay. So the conclusion, concluding remarks that I wanted to make are that if you don't have a birth time, it's not the end of the world. Um, There's lots of things that you can do without a birth time. We just like rattled off a whole list of them. Mm -hmm. So obviously you're not, you know, um, totally devoid of techniques that you can throw at your birth chart, both to just interpret the chart itself as well as in terms of timing techniques. There's lots of stuff you can do and lots of stuff to learn and play with. Mm-hmm. Um, so some astrologers that you go go to, it is true, may not feel confident interpreting your birth chart without a birth time. And to be honest, myself, when I was still doing consultations, because I've taken the past few years off just to focus on the podcast, um, because I was so dependent on using techniques like zodiac releasing, which require a very exact, very precise birth time. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't usually do consultations with people that didn't have one, um, with some exceptions. Mm -hmm. So there are astrologers like that that are so dependent on a birth time that they don't um, either see clients or they don't know what to do without one. Mm -hmm. But that's not everybody. There's other astrologers where that's not a big deal, and they're much more adapted to it and much more used to doing Consultations without a birth time. Mm-hmm. I know you did a, a chart. For, you you did you worked like a, a wedding once where most of the people didn't have birth times, right? Yeah, it was just a variety. Some people happen to, but lots of people, of course, right off the street are not going to know their exact birth time. So you had to just work with what was. And yeah, it's all the things we've been talking about. So talking about some basic natal placements, or talking about what transits are most exact right now, or talking about say, oh, I see you're in your Saturn return, so that's really important. Let's talk about that. So there's always things that you can talk about, even though I'm certainly also kind of dependent at this point on like advanced techniques that require a birth time. But I think if you are the astrologer, um, you know, and you're listening to this, it's good to kind of get back to the basics too, even if you have become dependent on some other things that require birth times. But, you know, to remember that there's always foundational things that you can talk about and even talk about for a good long while with someone, um, you know, even without that. Yeah. Well, it's good practice. And I think also, some of the discussion lately, some of the people have presented it to me as an issue of accessibility and, and mm. wanting to make astrology accessible and the notion of it being inaccessible or almost a sort of, maybe this isn't the right term, but a sort of elitism of people that have a birth time and therefore can do all this stuff with astrology and houses and everything else versus creating this other category of people that don't have a birth time for whatever reason and therefore astrology becomes inaccessible to. And I think Mm. when presented like that, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode because um, 
you know, I don't want people to feel left out. I want people to realize that there is still lots you can do with astrology, even without a birth time. And that's part of some of the tips that we're trying to outline here, mm -hmm. that it's not necessarily the end of the world. And um, there's still huge chunks of the system that are accessible to you that so that you shouldn't necessarily feel completely left out per se. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I mean, there's lots of subcategories of things that we even talked about that you can do. Like say, you know, Saturn's going through a sign. It has a natal placement in it. Maybe it's not your Saturn cycle, but say Saturn's going through your Mercury sign. You know, um, you're going to become over the course of this two and a half to three years, kind of more serious or focused or sober-minded regarding cognitive things, whether you're studying harder for some reason, whether you're trying to create lectures, you know, um, whether you're just studying a topic, you're in college, all of these kind of things. You can do that by extension with any transits to any natal placement signs even. Um, and so that creates a whole list of things you can watch. You can talk about the planetary returns, even if they're, they're um, not the full like eight year, 15 year, you know, Venus cycles or Mars cycles. Say it's your Venus return in May of this year. Mm -hmm. Look at what that looks like. You know, there's so many things you can talk about. It's just you do have to get back to the basics and remember what they all are. Yeah, and I would encourage. I think it's also a good challenge for practicing astrologers. And although, for like the there was like a six year period there between 2010 and 2016 where I was doing consultations, like a bunch of consultations each week. Mm. I was mainly, you know, I was doing consultations to help people and to apply the techniques. But I was also every time you do a consultation, you learn something new from it mm -hmm. um, by having a unique person that you're talking to about their life. And so for me, it was also an opportunity to learn more about um, zodiac releasing. And I was refining my understanding of Hellenistic astrology and of that technique in particular as part of my like side goal um, in building up like chart examples and stuff that I would later employ in my book, which came out in 2016 in my course on Hellenistic astrology. But I think it's actually a good challenge for people to um, reach outside of that and to challenge themselves to read charts for people that don't have birth times. Mm -hmm. Because anytime you like limit yourself or take something away that you're used to working with and taking for granted, um, although it's like awkward and, and can be difficult or Inconvenient or uncomfortable at first, eventually that's going to help you to build up like a stronger muscle that you haven't necessarily used that much before. Mm -hmm. And you'll become more competent and more effective as an astrologer as a result by learning how to make do with what you have. Right. So I think that's one of the other good things that I want to encourage people to do when it comes to charts without birth times is learn how to read them because that's going to help you not just to be able to manage working with charts without birth times better, which is a situation that you're naturally going to run into a lot in your career as an astrologer, mm. but it also might actually make you better when you do come back to working with charts with birth times because you're not going to be as dependent on like immediately jumping to things like house placements or other things like that. It'll help you to refine and improve your treatment of basic things like planets and signs and planets aspecting other planets. Mm -hmm, I agree. And I think, you know, as an, as astrologers, you can get a little bit used to shorthand if you're employing lots of different pieces in consultations. Like, so this means this and dwell on that for like a minute and then keep going on. But you could talk about that one thing for half an hour. You know, you could really unpack it very deeply. And so I think that kind of ties into what you're saying um, and reminds me a little bit of the forecast episodes, really. It's a similar kind of thing where you're saying, you know, what can we say about this limited set of symbols and really 
you know, delve as deeply as we can or be describe those things as evocatively as we can and with like a full range of possibility possible manifestations. Yeah, I mean it's the same analogy with like the outer planets and how sometimes when you're learning traditional astrology or learning Hellenistic astrology, it's good to um, take the outer planets out of charts and just learn how to delineate charts with just the seven traditional or seven visible planets. Because even though <clears throat> that might be difficult at first or something that you're not used to, because modern astrologers tend to rely a lot on the outer planets because they're so um, stark in their significations and so distinctive, mm -hmm. when you learn how to, that you can actually delineate a chart with just the seven visible planets, you develop naturally a deeper understanding of the significations of each of those planets mm -hmm. because you're not spreading yourself as thin. Right. So you're able, actually able to improve your skills um, with the basics. And that's kind of a same, the same principle here of interpreting charts without birth times. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I guess that's it then for this episode. I think so. Talking about um, interpreting uh, natal charts without birth times. Mm -hmm. So, um, having set that up, are you ready? You want to interpret a lot of birth charts without birth times? Are you are you open? Are you doing consultations right now? That'll or? be a <laughs> that'll be a part two, perhaps. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but oh, do you mean in general for clients? Yeah. Are you doing yeah. natal consultations? Yeah, I do natal consultations. Um, I have about five month wait right now, a wait list. Um, but you can get on it certainly. And um, yeah, I always encourage people, as we said at the top of the episode, to fully research the possible sources of an exact birth time. But we'll also, you know, it's fine if you don't, if you can't. Right. Yeah. And and you also do rectifications mm -hmm. sometimes. Yep. We have that those other episodes on rectification mm -hmm. that people should check out, the other episodes on annual perfections. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to learn astrology, I would recommend getting my book, Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune. Um, and also signing up for my course on Hellenistic astrology, where I go into more detail with example charts, because that's going to help you not just learn um, some of the advanced timing techniques like zodiac releasing, which require birth times, but also some of the basic stuff that you need to know about planets, sect, the difference between um, superior versus inferior aspects, and other things like that. Mm -hmm. It's very comprehensive. Yeah. So you can find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. And otherwise, I think that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for joining me today. Quite welcome. All right. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks to all the patrons who support our work here. We appreciate you. And uh, thanks for, for listening and watching. So we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to the patrons who support the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons that are on our producers tier, such as Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, Marin Altman, Thomas Miller, Bear River, Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marillot, Christy Moe, and Sumo Kopic. Find out more about how to become a patron at patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Also, thanks to our sponsors this month, which include the Astrogold Astrology app, available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, and also the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting an online conference September 12th through the 13th, 2020. Find out more information at esar2020.org, as well as the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening May 27th through the 31st, 2021, and you can find out more information about that at norwac.net. 
Finally, the software we use here on the Astrology Podcast is called SolarFire Astrology Software, and it's available through alabe.com, and you can get a 15% discount with the promo code AP15. 